Writing sermons for the great days and seasons are for me particularly difficult because these liturgies are very powerful and they sort of uh, explain the whole story. But it's interesting that for Ash Wednesday and for Good Friday, the rubric in the Book of Common Prayer after the Passion uh, is read from John's Gospel, it says, a sermon follows, not a sermon may be preached. So uh, there's no way to sort of weasel out of this from the standpoint that somehow the liturgy speaks for itself. This is the liturgy that had the most powerful impress on me uh, as a young seminarian at Neshota House when I first saw it. I was uh, uh, deeply moved by it and what it was like. I thought in my sermon on Good Friday this year I'd preach about all three of the readings and then to exercise my hobby horse of the last two or three years and talk about the, some of the theories of the atonement and why uh, I have a, a particularly favorite theory that I think is, is pretty good. And then to say something briefly about the nature of salvation because the cross of Christ looms large for Christian people as an instrument of our salvation and how do we think about it and the readings that we heard from uh, Second Isaiah, from the letter to the Hebrews, and from John's Gospel uh, provide us some insight into that, I believe. Uh, we read today in Isaiah um, the fourth servant song. Sunday, on Palm Sunday, we read from the third servant song, the suffering servant. And the prophet Isaiah is talking really about Israel and the exile and the return from exile and the difficulties that have uh, followed on that historical reality. And so in, fourth Isaiah, in, in the fourth servant song, we hear something now about how uh, we personify this. And remember on Sunday I mentioned that uh, early Christians, their holy scriptures were the Hebrew Bible. Obviously, when this was written from 2nd Isaiah, there were no Christian scriptures. The early Christians who went to the synagogue were reading from the Hebrew scriptures. And they began to interpret these scriptures in light of their lived experience and some of the eyewitnesses who believed that what they read here was predictive of the coming of Jesus and also of his redemptive death. And so we read today about this in 2nd Isaiah. Reginald Fuller, one of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century in Anglican, said, it is important that we see the cross not as the mechanical fulfillment of a preconceived dogmatic scheme, but as the culmination of the intensely personal mission of Jesus as a whole. He identified himself completely with sinners during his ministry. And in so doing, he broke through the barrier of sin set up between God and humanity. He stood for God on the side of sinners. Because the early church saw the cross in light of Jesus' whole ministry, it found in Isaiah 53 an almost perfect prophecy of the Passion and used it as a quarry 
for its own theological statements about the passion. They are an attempt to capture in words the passion to those who did not have the direct experience of the crucifixion, the meaning of a real flesh and blood history as the action of God pro nobis, which is the Latin term that means for us and for our salvation. So we are getting an example of what I'm going to tell you later is my preferred theory of the atonement, and it is perfectly stated in a way in the reading from Second Isaiah, from chapter 52 and chapter 53. So from that we segue now into a reading from the letter to the Hebrews where the writer is speaking about the priesthood of Christ and by extension the community out of which the epistle to the Hebrews emerged understood themselves to be a priestly people. You've heard the term the priesthood of all believers. That somehow through our baptism all of us are baptized into the priesthood of all believers. When I was in seminary, I was taught that our baptism is our ordination. The other ordinations are what are called by some of the scholars the ministerial priesthood. But you and I are part of the priesthood of all believers, and we share in these qualities that we understand the Savior expressed as the template, looking to Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Sympathy for human weakness as the result of his own earthly experiences. The answer to his prayer for deliverance. No, there's no deliverance here. You need to fulfill your vocation. And his learning of obedience. The author of the letter to the Hebrews understands all of us are caught up in Christ's sacrifice and are enabled in him to offer ourselves, our souls and bodies in union with his sacrifice and are in turn transformed by his sacrifice. So what we mean when we speak of laboring in the world to make the values of the kingdom of God, the values all humans express toward one another and the creation that God made and called good. Now, the only way we can get to that is to understand what Reginald Fuller said a little earlier, that somehow we now have identified Jesus and the totality of his ministry, and it's been very difficult to do that for a long, long time. There needs to be, in my opinion, a substantial amount of adult re-education in the church. Let me just read this to you from... Uh, the Nicene Creed. We say this every Sunday. I believe in the Nicene Creed. I'm, uh, I'm okay on the Creed. But sometimes we say this by rote and we don't realize in terms of its statement about what it is that we believe uh, what's left out. We begin with God from God, life from you know, all that, and then we get for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. 
So we start with, born of the Virgin Mary and was made man, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. How do we understand the ministry of Jesus, his mighty acts, his words and works when they're not mentioned here? It's the middle part, which is how we understand the Savior in depth. And we get to that by putting two and two together in our lived experience as we learn about the ways and the means to become the best human beings that we can be and understanding our priestly vocation to reach out in love and concern for others and to labor relentlessly to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. And so it is there that we begin to find maybe the location for how we understand what we believe about what happened on the cross. So as I segue into the atonement, let me just say something about this. I've mentioned this many times. Uh, I have this little book I got at a used theological library giveaway called Creeds in the Making by Alan Richardson. And he was a well-known biblical scholar in the Church of England in the 1930s. He wrote the theological word book of the New Testament and some other things. And so in this book, he has a whole chapter on uh, theories of the atonement. And in it, he said, the doctrine of the atonement is a theory. There are a number of theories of the atonement. Because it is a theory, you and I are free to make up our own theory. Now, there, are, there is a theory that certainly since 1915, it didn't originate that late, but it, it came into its now fully uh, orbed shape by a group of Christians in the United States called fundamentalists. And in 1915, they published a multi-volume set called The Fundamentals. And in The Fundamentals, they advanced now perhaps the most widely advanced and believed theory of the atonement. Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. God imputed the guilt of our sins to Christ, and he, in our place, bore the punishment that we deserve. This was a full payment for sins, which satisfied both the wrath and the righteousness of God, so that he could forgive sinners without compromising his own holy standard. Now, how do you reconcile that with God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness? This theory's origins come from a former Archbishop of Canterbury, a Benedictine monk by the name of Anselm. And he lived in the 11th century. And Anselm developed something called the satisfaction theory of the atonement, which was, is largely this. Now, what kind of a world was Anselm living in? It was the Middle Ages. And the society that he was living in was a feudal society. And in a feudal society, you've got vassals, and you've got lords, and you've got serfs, and you've got all this division of people, and so forth. 
And it's a system that uh, is uh, uh, derived from the idea that somebody has to pay when it is necessary. Somebody will have to pay. I don't particularly find this a, a congenial thing. Nowadays, you hear people say, um, just emotionally driven, you know, what kind of a God would sacrifice his own son uh, for, for the world? You know? N.T. Wright says, this is the theory of the atonement that says uh, the headmaster of a school sends his own boy into the school to get beat up by the bullies. Now, there's an ancient theory of the atonement, which to my view is the preferred one. It's the one that everybody held maybe for the first four or five hundred years, at least maybe nearly a thousand years in Christian history. And it's a, it's a theory called Christus Victor. And it refers to a Christian understanding of the atonement, which views Christ's death as the means by which the powers of evil which held humankind under dominion, were defeated. Humanity has fallen into the grip of dark powers. Christ comes into his situation and battles against these powers with his cross, and, comes, and from that comes the overwhelming victory, bringing deliverance to new life and to humankind. So Father Keating might say it this way, as Jesus' life unfolded, his awareness of his personal union with the Father constantly increased. As he approached the end of his life, he revealed the God of Israel not as a God of armies or fear or of sheer transcendence, but as the God of compassion, a presence that bends over creatures with incredible tenderness, care, and affection. At the same time, God is firm in training his children so that they may grow into the transcendent destiny that he has planned for them. Think of the presence bending over in love. It's a great image. You know, the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement has accomplished in Alan Jones' view, the former dean of Grace Cathedral, making God vengeful in the name of justice has left thousands of souls deeply wounded and lost to the church forever. And he's right. Yes. Making God vengeful in the name of justice has left thousands of souls deeply wounded and lost to the church forever. So when we think about salvation, the cross is one of those things, but you know, we must respond. That's what this is about. That's why we need to know about the middle bits after born, crucified. What was between there? And one of the things we discover about what was between there was how we're part of this enterprise. For the first 700 years of Christian history, the preaching and teaching about salvation through Jesus Christ was always about affirmative aspects of the work of God in the creation. 
We are saved to newness of life. We are saved to the possibility of transformation and renewal. We're saved to the possibility of having a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for us. We're saved to the possibility of understanding who we are and what our vocation ought to be in new ways on a regular basis. And after that, we switched from being saved from sin, sickness, and death, the dark powers, all of the kinds of things that we endlessly talk about with regard to human sinfulness and depravity. In the Episcopal Church, we believe in God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. What you heard from Isaiah 52 and 53 was a perfect, albeit Old Testament, description of Christus Victor. And it is one of the most preferable theories of the atonement in, in my view. The cross of Christ is a stability. John McQuarrie the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity many years ago at Oxford said, the cross of Christ is both a stability that stands with us in our own suffering, in our own difficulty, in the crosses that we bear, and it is also a dynamic force in the lives of faithful people pointing us to a new future that is fraught with possibility. And so those hopeful things are one of the reasons why we call this day Good. Amen.